1: This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. With just 24 hours before the polls open, I believe it's time to rest my case on Donald J. Trump. The defense rests, Your Honor. <laughs> It's now up to the rest of you to go out and vote if you haven't done so already and put an end to this national nightmare once and for all. Those of you who have listened to this show since the beginning know me well enough by now to understand my personal loathing for the president and those who still remain in his enthrall. I believe they are guilty of heinous crimes, both criminal and karmic. The president must answer for the hundreds of thousands dead on his watch from coronavirus. He must answer his criminally negligent approach to the virus and the way in which he used his rallies to lie to the American people about the pandemic. We're rounding the curve. We will vanquish the virus. He must answer for what he has done in terms of politicizing this virus and villainizing Dr. Anthony Fauci. And he must answer for the terrible winter of death and despair that is to come because he chose to ignore the warnings. People are tired of hearing... Fauci and all these idiots, these, these people. Boy Prince Jared Kushner must answer for the comments he made last week to journalist Bob Woodward, in which he celebrated the taking back of this country from the scientists. They have blood on their hands, plain and simple.
0: The last thing was uh, kind of doing the, the guidelines, which was interesting. And that, in my mind, was almost like, you know, it was almost like Trump getting the country back from the doctors, right? In the sense that what he now did was, you know, he's gonna own the open up.
1: Tomorrow's election will likely unleash a wave of chaos and violence unseen in modern politics. For this, Trump must also be held accountable. His cynical and dangerous embrace of extremist militia groups and their vigilante brethren is a ticking time bomb of his own creation for which he alone holds the detonator. stand back and stand by the peaceful transition of power has always been the hallmark of a well-functioning democracy under this president we have removed that certainty for the first time since the american civil war mayors of cities large and small have put their police forces on high alert businesses are boarding up their windows homeowners in some areas are even hiring their own private security fearful of the rage about to kick off. There are growing concerns about violence and intimidation, particularly on or after election day. Their weapon of choice, the infamous AK-47, also known as the Kalashnikov. Originally developed for the Soviet army, Diaz now plans to use the assault rifle to defend America's freedom. This is the work of a madman, a monster, and a degenerate. Unable to persuade the electorate, he now threatens to hold us all hostage. In this fashion, Trump is less Vladimir Putin than Arthur Fleck, the criminally insane, sad sack loser from The Joker, whose ultimate delight was in watching the world burn. Well, tomorrow, Trump will likely get his wish. He can watch it all on television, tuck safely in the West Wing and say, this is the way the world ends. And with that, he will have let slip forces of hatred and violence that he won't be able to control and will haunt us for a generation. Lighting a fuse that has sat dormant, waiting for its own agent of darkness to help usher in the chaos. Wolverines! Don't be surprised if he mobilizes his MAGA army tomorrow in an attempt to intimidate voters, all under the guise of voter fraud. He's already hinted at such behavior in the first debate, and in a few keystrokes... He will call out his dogs on the American people. I believe that this unfortunately will become the new abnormal. Trump has shown the most cynical amongst us the benefits of his shameful behavior. If you uphold no norms, you're completely unaccountable. If he destroys the final illusion of our democracy, that we can freely exercise our right to vote without fear of violence, there will be those more than willing to repeat the cycle. I don't mean to depress everyone with my dystopian predictions, but we must reckon with the aftermath or the likely aftermath of this election or it will haunt us forever. Will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful transfer of power after the election?
0: Well, we're gonna have to see
1: what happens. You know that. Just some facts. The election is unlikely to end on November 3rd. I will weep with joy and relief for a landslide victory where the evening is called for Biden at 10 p.m. But Trump will not abdicate his seat without a desperate fight. We will be adjudicating the results of this election well until January 21, and it will be up to the U.S. Marshal Service to escort the former president away from the White House. His lame duck presidency will be rife with insanity and incompetence just as we're headed into the darkest moments of the coronavirus. Instead of guiding the country through these terrible days to come, the president will instead concentrate on settling old scores and figuring out how to keep himself out of prison. Do not be surprised if he attempts to pardon himself through his new conservative court majority. Be prepared for a rash of questionable executive orders aimed at plundering the country and punishing his enemies. Unfortunately, this election will not be the end of Donald Trump either. Not by a long shot. No fucking way. Stripped of his legitimacy and shorn of legal constraints, he will finally become what he was always longed to be, a true dictator. A Trump loss actually gives him the license to go full on fucking Idi Amin. And in the middle of this, we must chart our darkest hours yet to come. It's been difficult in these final days of the election to hear other voices outside of Donald Trump's. His mere presence casts a giant fucking shadow over the rest of the news cycle. And right now, the Sainted Dr. Anthony Fauci is waving his arms desperately trying to get our attention despite extreme pressure from the president to remain silent. The pandemic is spreading exponentially and the country faces a tidal wave of death, not just in major cities, but literally everywhere. Zero hour has arrived and lots of people are going to die.
0: I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window Open
1: it and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. With all this in mind, I spent a great deal of time thinking about who my last guest should be before the election. I wanted to have a conversation that spoke less to the politics of the moment than to the better angles within ourselves. Someone who spoke to the American people from their conscience and carry with them great moral weight. And I'm proud to say that person is none other than Bakari Sellers. The best-selling author of My Vanishing Country, his memoir about growing up in the rural South, Sellers joins me on *Maya culpa just days away from the election. Raised in a family steeped in the civil rights movement, Sellers today works as a trial attorney and CNN analyst. He also hosts his own hit podcast, For The Ringer. But all of this feels like a temporary way station for a much larger destiny. Sellers was the youngest elected African-American official in the country when he held office. He worked for Barack Obama. I have no doubt he will serve once again. It's with a keen eye for history that Sellers has been watching his friend Jamie Harrison turn a long shot bid against Trump loyalist Lindsey Graham into the closest Senate race in the country. South Carolina is up for grabs. Senator Lindsey Graham's seat in the Palmetto State is not a sure thing with his Democratic challenger Jamie Harrison raising more money in the third quarter than any other Senate candidate in history. Wow. Next cycle, it could be Seller's turn to upset the incumbent. As I write this, though, protests have engulfed Philadelphia in defiance of yet another police killing. The president has wasted no time stoking further division and seems almost gleeful about reports of looting and vandalism. It has become one last political football for the president before the election. A Democrat-run state, a Democrat-run city, Philadelphia. We don't have that. We don't have it. The Republicans don't have it. We're looking at the shooting, yes. We're looking at the shooting. It also raises some uncomfortable truths for white liberals who are watching reports of widespread looting and worrying to themselves that the lawlessness will benefit Donald Trump. It is here that I am reminded of the writer James Baldwin, who is also a favorite of Sellers, about a famous interview in Esquire magazine that ran after the assassination of Martin Luther King. Those who were there and students of history will remember America's cities went up in flames after Dr. King was shot. But Esquire wanted to know, how can we get the black people to call it? Baldwin's answer, it's not for us to call it. What causes the eruptions, the riots, the revolts, Baldwin said, is the despair of being in a static position, watching your father, your brother, your uncle, or your cousin, who has no future.
0: The reason that black people are in the streets has to do with the lives they're forced to lead in this country.
1: It's these larger questions that Sellers seeks to address. First, though, he'd like to see the end of Donald Trump. So let's listen now to that conversation. Bakari, let's just jump right into the question that's probably on everybody's mind. And that's last night's town hall debate was obviously a study in true contrasts. The most striking moment for me last night was watching Biden speak cogently about policy to the American people while President Trump refused to disavow QAnon. Savannah Guthrie responded to him that you're the president. You're not someone's like crazy uncle. At this point, you need to say that Trump needs these voters and recognizes that QAnon and these other extremist groups are his true base and has painted himself into a crazy corner as he needs their total support to have a chance on November 3rd. Talk to me about this. What's your opinion?
0: Yeah, first, man, I'm I'm happy to be here with you. Uh, I thought it was a clear contrast between the two. And I'll be honest with you, I, I did dip in and watch a lot of the Braves game last night too. Um, so I wasn't, I wasn't that focused on, on both of these debates, but I thought Savannah Guthrie did a great job pressing him. I thought that, you know, this crazy lunacy, this conspiracy theory about uh seal team six and just the despicable nature in which he, you know, talks about our military. It just, it's, it just takes you aback. Um, but Biden last night, he, he gave clear answers. He, um, you know, he does really well in these, um, in these town hall settings. I, I think that Donald Trump in the the first debate um, centered on on something which is is kind of uh, it's a unique debate tactic. It's it's not cool, but it's a it's a tactic nonetheless. Which is when individuals stutter um, the way that Joe Biden does, attempt to talk over them because individuals who stutter have to focus on their words, and when you talk over them, they're not able to do that. And it's a disrespectful tactic, but it's one that he employed in the first debate. And last night, when Joe Biden's able to actually give full sentences, complete sentences, and and uh, you know, talk about policy, I think that it was a clear contrast. One person knows policy, and the other person is Donald Trump.
1: Look, so working for Trump for so many years, obviously, I became an expert in creating conspiracy theories. Now, I heard from people who are close to Trump and to the re-election campaign that that tactic of talking over Joe Biden because he stutters was advised to Trump by chris christie and by rudy giuliani you yeah. hear anything similar to that
0: yeah i did hear uh chris christie has somewhat disavowed it but you know <laughs> that i don't mean a whole bunch of nothing uh but i have heard that, that chris christie who it, it, it himself is a skilled debater but he's also been on the stage with donald trump it's a really underhanded tactic to to and it's one that didn't work well for him but that's what he that that's what he uh played on and you know, this second debate was supposed to be a town hall setting. And everyone knows that Joe Biden does better in town hall settings because he's actually able to answer questions. And if you saw that last night, uh, Donald Trump's record is just deplorable uh, to, to bring back a phrase from 2016, which you all did so well uh, uh, campaigning on. But, you know, it's just it's, a, it's an interesting it's just an interesting dichotomy of choices that we have here. So I think the only thing left for, for uh, Donald Trump is to suppress as many voters as possible. I
1: I agree with you on that. And let's go back to the contrast. So George Stephanopoulos asked possibly the most frightening question of the evening when he asked Joe Biden, what will it say about the country if Mr. Uh, Trump is reelected? And then Biden's answer that he hoped it doesn't mean we are as racially, ethnically and religiously at odds with one another as it appears the president wants us to be was the answer really of a career politician. What do you think it says about us as a nation if Trump is reelected?
0: And I don't really even want to think about that. But um, it shows us that we're not as far as we as we hope that we are. It shows us that things like racism and xenophobia win the day. It shows us that uh, character no longer matters. I mean, look, the Republican Party is going to have a, a reckoning November 3rd. They're going to have a Trump reckoning November 3rd, whether or not they want to deal with it or not. I'll give you the perfect example. Like Cal Cunningham, who's in North Carolina right now, running for United States Senate, they got kind of caught up in a sex scandal. That doesn't even matter anymore because in Trump's America, nothing matters anymore. And Cal Cunningham going to win the Senate race with the scandal or without. I mean, so it's just it, – the norms have been thrown out the window they've been stepped on, and uh when you lose the Senate and, and lose the white house you you're going to have to and i ben sass i'm sure you you've heard you heard Ben sass's comments on them
1: I most certainly did finally, good for him, finally good for somebody to stand up. you know Chris Christie tried in some lame way yesterday you know to yeah. apologize to america yeah. what what was that? I call that political bullshit right. He's so skilled at it. It was pure bullshit. He doesn't. He's not apologetic for anything. You know, it hit him like it's hit so many people. I've lost friend friends, people um, who friends, parents. Um, One even as early as last night as a result of COVID. This is not a joke. And the fact that he could placate the president for whatever political expediency he thought it would bring him. I have no idea. But what it was, political bullshit.
0: It's amazing to me how people somewhat morph uh, and change who they are around around the president. Chris Christie being one of them. Chris Christie was always a, an honest, you know, he prided himself on being like an honest bull and a China shot type of individual. Um, and he's become a lot more meek since then. I didn't even know he was in ICU for seven days. Um, but I'm glad. I mean, I, I, I do have some level of, of hope that now that he's gone through it, yeah, although he's gotten the best drugs in the world, maybe, just maybe, they'll take it a little bit more seriously. I, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I highly doubt it. But you, you'll remember so many times you and I sitting in the green room at CNN, and we would have the debate in regard to Trump in the 2016 election. And I and I told you that Trump was going to win that election. And he was able to win that election simply because he's not a politician. His line of bullshit was, I'm not a politician, I'm a businessman. I'm not just a businessman, I'm a great businessman. And I want to put my skills to work for you, the United States of America. And that line went over very well with what we used to term as the silent majority, but no longer, because he's not a businessman. And what we've uncovered, based upon my testimony, based upon the New York Times' reporting with the tax returns, is that he's not a great businessman. He's actually a shit businessman who was fortunate to inherit a lot of money from his father. Right. I know that Trump is going to lose this election because he's lost that song. I'm so confident about it. I actually placed a bet the other day with this company (laughs) called, with this company called guesser. Um, and, I just want people to understand it's, it's actually, it's a, it's a nice size bet. I took some money from the profits of, um, of my book sales, $10,000 <laughs> and point, I put it, okay, your I put, book is and good. Put, your
0: book is good, by the way. Why? Thank
1: you. Thank you. So <laughs> I took that money and I put it on what I consider to be a sure bet. And if I win, I believe I win like $15,000 and 100% of that money I'm donating to the ACLU for social purpose. Oh, there you go. I am so looking forward to handing them that check. You can't imagine I'm, I, I'm salivating over it. Yeah. Uh,
0: you guys taught us a lesson. You know, Democrats are proverbial bedwetters. We are. And you taught us a lesson in 2016. So a lot of people are still on edge, which means people are working hard all the way through election day to make sure that they uh, make sure they're doing everything they're supposed to do, leaving no stone unturned. It was unique in 2016, though. We had the two most unpopular candidates in the history of the country. You don't have that dynamic right now.
1: No, no, we don't. But you you do know, Bakari, I've I've been a Democrat my entire life.
0: I know Trump was too, right, would not
1: he? Well, he was a Republican, a Democrat, an Independent, and a Martian. I mean, he's anything that (laughs) suits him, right? I I want to turn to on Twitter, the division between Trump and Biden boiled down to those who believed that they were watching an insane person rant and rave on stage with the president and those who liken watching Biden to an episode of Mister Rogers' Neighborhood, yeah, I'm trying that. to get myself into the mindset of his rational conservative supporters, if there are any, to see how there is in any way that they can support this man. Again, who's left at this point?
0: That's a good question. <laughs> uh, the silent well, that's majority. Why I'm coming
1: to the best. <laughs> that's why I'm coming to the best for the answer, Bakari.
0: Look, this is this is what this is what we found out. The Steve Shale is a. He knows Florida better than absolutely anybody. Um, he ran he ran Florida for Barack Obama not once, but twice when Barack Obama won both of those states. And I recall uh, myself, I write about it in my book, actually myself and Gloria Borgia, We were reaching out to Steve Shell right before um, uh, right before the Florida primary. And he said he ran 13 simulations, 13 of those 13, 12 came back and Hillary Clinton had won Florida. So election night, and as the votes are, votes are being counted, he calls us, we call him actually, and he sa- tells us, he says, white voters are raining out of the sky. He said whatever, he said that, that 13th, the, the, the 13th uh, simulation that he ran is actually happening right now. The, the trick to that is uh, what we saw were these individuals who had been on the sideline for so many people falling Um, for what I believe to be one of the greatest cons in the history of this country, which is uh, somebody who shits on a golden toilet uh, making um, poor and and lower middle class individuals believe he speaks for them. Uh, When we look back at it in in the history of politics, it's going to be one of the greatest cons that anyone's ever pulled off. Um, And I, I think that a lot of that's eroding. He also Donald Trump also uniquely touched on a similar strain to what Bernie Sanders touched on which is this populism, which is this trade has left us by that spoke in the Rust Belt. So I do think that some of these races are going to be close, but I don't think uh, at the end of the day, the Electoral College is going to be close. I think it's going to be a blowout. But I think that some of these states, uh, Ohio, for example, are going to be closer than people would imagine.
1: Well, it's funny because on my Twitter last night, I couldn't help myself as I was watching Trump's insanity
0: performance.
1: You still watch them?
0: You still watch? Is it like hate watching? What is
1: it? It's not, it's neither hate watching or, you know, or liking watching it. My my thumb is killing me from clicking back and forth, you know, from (laughs) channel to channel. So, because I really wanted to see both so that I could, you know, be somewhat intelligent as I talk to you. But for me, I wrote on my Twitter, watching Trump reminded me of a, of a line in one of my all-time favorite movies, Young Frankenstein. It's the nonsensical rantings of a lunatic mind. And that's exactly what we had yesterday. I mean, first of all, he was sweating profusely. Then on top of that, he couldn't sit straight where he had his his right leg off to the side, almost as if he wanted to charge Savannah Guthrie last night. I was like, all right, listen, as much as I dislike the man, don't charge her. That's not going to be good. Just knock it. Get- <laughs> Just and but but that, he
0: did have one good moment. You you saw uh, Paulette Paulette shot her shot last night. She she said that Donald Trump was handsome and had a had a great smile. She she probably slid in the DMs after the after the town hall was over.
1: Yeah, well that'll be his next wife. So, <laughs> switching gears for a moment, I saw on your Twitter feed that you've been following closely the rapper Ice Cube's um, yeah. alliance with the Trump campaign over his supposed support of Ice Cube's contract with Black America. Can you explain for a moment to my listeners what the contract is and why Ice Cube thought it made sense to cast his hopes on it with the most racist president in American history?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. So Ice Cube uh, came along after the primary and uh, put together, and, and more props to him, I, I think that... that uh, more black voters need to make demands of both parties, uh, making sure that they focus on things such as uh, black wealth, um, education, healthcare, not just criminal justice, et cetera. And so more power to CUBE for doing that. To give you some context some things that, that your listeners may not know, that you may not know, um, the Biden campaign, Simone Sanders, Keisha Lance Bottoms, Cedric Richmond actually reached out to CUBE and sat down with them and talked about, his contract with Black America. Now, Ice Cube, he set with some economists and some of his team, quote-unquote team, to put together this agenda. It's okay. It's not very thorough. Uh, It's a couple of pages. um, And, uh, you know, it focuses, it really centers itself and focuses itself on uh, Black wealth. It also has some things in there, like tear down all the Confederate statues and some other stuff that, you know, we would, we would waste some time in doing. And so, Ice Cube wanted a little bit more attention than he got, I'm assuming, because uh, the campaign said, you know, we, we we like some of these ideas, not all of these ideas. We will uh, get with you after the election and try to implement some more of your, your ideas because Joe Biden already has a Black agenda that he's actually talked to people on the ground. Let me, let, me, let me give you a better analogy, Michael. Joe Biden worked diligently on putting together his Black agenda and Black equity plan. He worked with uh, Alicia Garza, he worked with the NAACP, he worked with all of these groups who have been doing this work on the ground for a long period of time. Ice Cube came in after the primaries, everything, and said, this is what you should be doing. That is, this is the equivalent of you, Michael Cohen, calling LeBron James the night before the NBA Finals and telling LeBron James how to run the pick and roll. Like LeBron would hang up on you, right? And rightfully so. And so he's come to the table demanding all of these things And the campaign even tried to wrap their arms around him. There's another fact that you don't know that wasn't even reported in Politico recently that Kamala actually reached out to cube and DL Hughley and killer Mike and, um, um, a few others. I can't remember who else was involved and, uh, they ice cube didn't show up to the call. He had a one-on-one opportunity with, with, Senator Harris. And so they were making these overtures, but then Jared Kushner and Jerron and, uh, who's, who's actually one of my good friends and, A few others, they've been working Ice Cube for about two months. And yesterday, or day before yesterday, Katrina Pearson, um, with Cube's blessing, finally put out that Ice Cube's been working with them for the past couple of months on on his black agenda. I don't know why Cube all of a sudden thinks that Donald Trump's going to give black folk $500 billion. Uh, But he wanted the attention, and he got it.
1: One of the things that I tried to do early on when he became president-elect is with Jim Brown and the AmeriCan program. And my real hope was that he would, when he was sitting in the room with 40 or 50 black leaders in that community, along with the great Jim Brown and others, that he would understand that so much still needs to be done and that he was going to be in a position to do it. So Ice Cube, if you're listening, give me a call. You got a better chance of accomplishing something by speaking to me because rest assured, Trump doesn't give a shit about the black community. He doesn't care. He likes the status quo because in his heart, in his heart, he is a true fucking racist. I said it 19 months ago before the world, and I'm going to say it to my listeners and anybody else that wants to hear this. He doesn't want to see the black community thrive. He likes the status quo
0: just the way it was. You know, for me, it's just, you know, somebody who puts out a plan after three years and 10 months in office a platinum plan. I don't know why you think they would implement that now. And I just think, you know, I have a great deal of respect for Cube. I just think he got played and he doesn't do politics well. And uh, the Trump campaign is now using him. And my only point to Cube and anyone else was, I don't have time for this shit. I got to go out and get people to the polls. Like, I don't have time to be petting you and giving you attention and coddling you. And there are a lot of there are a lot of black men in particular who are, are thirsting for some type of attention. I don't get it. Uh, and you have people like Lizzo and Meg Thee Stallion and others who are going out and doing the work and getting people to the polls. And you have Ice Cube, who's causing these distractions. But it helps. What Cube doesn't understand is it helps Donald Trump, because now there may be some black men who decide to stay at home simply because Cube is out here, you know, using his platform to sow disinformation.
1: Well, let's hope not. Um, Bakari, while everyone's attention is on the general election right now. There is another important battle that's taking place. And that's between Senator Lindsey Graham and Jamie Harrison. Yeah. And this race is so fascinating for so many reasons. The first of which being the fundraising numbers, 57 million dollars raised, which shattered the record set by Beto O'Rourke by 20 million. Now you said in a Times column that was written by Frank Bruni, if Jamie is to win then this is the most thorough rebuke of Trumpism that we've seen. It also restores a lot of people's faith in the basic humanity of this country. Is what's happening in South Carolina a harbinger for the general election?
0: Yeah, I I wholeheartedly believe because you guys just whipped Hillary in South Carolina uh, by double digits. And now Trump is only up by six, seven, eight points in South Carolina. This Jamie Harris and Lindsey Graham race. Um, and Lindsay is, Lindsay's been so disappointing. Um, because, you know, back in the day when I was in the general assembly and Lindsay, um, it was Lindsay was a junior senator and Jim DeMint was a senior senator, I believe. You know, you could go to Lindsay to get things done. But now after John McCain's death, Lindsay's somewhat like a pilot fish, meaning that he just has to find a bigger fish to hover around. And after John McCain passed away, uh, Donald Trump became that shark that Lindsey has to kind of sit under his, his fin and, and hover around with. And it's just been so disappointing to watch him lose all sense of self. This Jamie Harrison race, Jamie's from the same place I'm from. Jamie kind of, as we say, uh, he, he got it from the dirt. Um, he came from a very poor community, single mom, went to, uh, went to Yale, went to Georgetown, um, worked on Capitol Hill, has done everything. Was the first black state chairman. Has done everything right, and he's pushing Lindsey to the brink. And I think that Lindsey and <laughs> I don't know how you feel about this, but Lindsey Graham and is probably the second most, third most hated senator in the country behind Ted Cruz and Mitch McConnell. And I think Ted is number one. Nobody likes Ted. I and Republicans don't even like Ted. Um, but but Lindsey just the the Jamie story and Lindsey being this hated uh has made jamie have an excellent chance now will jamie win it's going to take some things to happen between now and then but people are voting like crazy in south carolina so he's going to have a chance and as someone who's run statewide in south carolina this is funny you'll appreciate this michael uh jamie has raised 86 million dollars when i ran for lieutenant governor i raised eight hundred thousand. uh so he's literally raised almost 90 times more money than i did and he's running a, and one of the best campaigns we've ever seen in South Carolina. So does he have a chance? Yes. Um, and no one would have ever guessed that when he uh, announced.
1: Well, I think it's a little more than that, too. I mean, the historic nature of that Senate seat is incredible, with Har- Harrison noting that the seat that he is now seeking was once held by John C. Calhoun, um, an infamous defender of slavery. And I think he stated that this was the seat of Benjamin Tillman who would go to the floor and talk about the joys of lynching. Now, this was the seat of Strom Thurmond, right, who took a leading role in opposing civil rights legislation. So this is an incredibly important seat for more than just the need to have a a logical individual to vote as we move away from Trumpism. This is
0: history. When I ran for office in 2014, I was running along with Tim Scott to be the first African-American elected statewide since 1876, since Reconstruction. I mean, and Tim Scott, you know, won and he was the first African-American elected since Reconstruction. But yeah, when you're talking about having a seat that used to be John C. Calhoun, I mean, they used to call John C. Calhoun, John C. Killacoon. That was his name or Ben Tillman. I mean, this is the history. So, yeah, there's a lot of history on the shoulders of, of Jamie. But, you know, the amazing thing about him taking on this challenge at this moment and what makes it so special is he gets to beat back the the those old harbingers of, of yesterday. I mean, he, he literally can beat those ghosts of the past that are represented in Donald Trump and Lindsey Graham. And so people are voting with a purpose and people are voting with history. And, you know, when black folk have an opportunity to make history, as we've seen before and as they see with Kamala Harris, they really do absolutely everything they can. And so it's going to be a close race, which nobody would have guessed. But, you know, I I truly believe in Jamie, and I think that, that this race, as you said, means so much more than just putting a good person in a Senate seat. This means changing the course of history, which is something that I tried to allude to in the article with Frank Bruni.
1: Understood. Well, I will tell you, Bakari, I loved this tweet that you wrote in July. I have a serious question for Trump voters. Do you vote for him because of his adoration for the Confederacy, or are you just comfortable ignoring his bigotry? I ask that, and I, I bring this up because I mean, who's left right now other than the racists and the QAnon crazies for Trump?
0: Well, there, I think there are more. I think that there are people who are just purely self interested. I mean, I, I know, I have, I have, I guess, friends. I have people that you know, in South Carolina, you 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 go down the street, and you know, every other person's probably a, a, a Republican or a Tea Party or whatever. There's some people who literally are, are just voting their pocketbooks. And so everybody who I, I want to be clear, everybody who supports Donald Trump is not a racist, but they have to be comfortable with racism. And I think that that is what we're seeing. Um, and I, I am, you know, whether or not it's Jamie Harrison's race or the work we're out here trying to do for anyone. Um, you're trying to push back on that notion and, and push people to be better because being selfish in the voting booth, it, it doesn't take this. kind. Of, that's how you end up with Donald Trump. And that's what Ben Sass was saying on that tape. I mean, We have to do better than what we've been doing with our elected officials, Donald Trump being the main one.
1: Yeah. Well, and and then look to see the desperation now to drag Hunter Biden into scandal is hilariously sad. What do you make of the latest attempt from Giuliani to link him to some rogue laptop? I mean, you have to say, I think Rudy Giuliani is the single greatest disgrace as an American citizen. I think he's just a, he, he is a liar. He is, he is a sycophant to the integrity. And if only, if only I had actually recorded Trump more than the one time that I did, I would have loved to have gotten a couple of the great lines that Trump used to say about Chris Christie, about Rudy Giuliani, right? And, and played it for them. I'm not sure that would change their minds, but it certainly would make them look like the stupid assholes that they are.
0: Rudy Giuliani has fallen further than uh, any, you know, politician that we've ever seen in recent history. I mean, no one has gone from America's mayor after 9-11 to being loathed faster than Rudy Giuliani has. And I don't know what's going on with Rudy. I mean, I I don't know uh, if he has some other issues that we don't know about. I, I just I don't get it. This last attempt, though, is actually being investigated by the FBI. It's just weird that uh, they, they're they trying to run the same playbook again from Anthony Weiner in 2016. They're trying to uh, have this, they're trying to uh, manufacture an October surprise. And Rudy Giuliani is one of the most unethical individuals. I, you saw the Washington Post article recently that said he's being played by the Russians. And they were like, that's Rudy. I mean, you wouldn't know this more than I being in that world, but they were like, that's Rudy. He's just going to do what he wants to do. It's It's terrible.
1: When you said that you're, most people are doing this for their pocket and so on. That's Rudy Giuliani. Giuliani Partners was doing terribly. I almost ended up joining him after uh, the inauguration uh, at Giuliani Partners. They were doing terribly. This now gives him the ability to go to the Saudis, to the Emirates, to go to the various different Middle Eastern countries to to do contracts with them. Right. So he's a loyalist to Trump based upon his pocket.
0: That's terrible. I mean, you go from somebody, but just just think about that. You go from somebody who helped this country recover from the greatest terrorist threat we've ever, we've ever experienced, 9-11, to somebody who literally is just being drug around by their nose, chasing the last, the last dollar they can find.
1: Well, that's Rudy Giuliani. Now, you recently tweeted that Republicans are going to steal this election if we're not vigilant, And we see what Trump is doing to undermine the election as a whole. But what's happening at the ground level that you see is both organized and systematic? So shout out
0: to groups like Black Voters Matter and Cliff Albright and Latasha Brown. I mean, if you come down to South Carolina or Georgia and you look at these lines, I mean, you got you got six, seven, eight hour waits for people to vote. And they're just waiting. I mean, because black folk have seen on they're like, we've been through this before. We've overcome more than this. And so. They are doing everything necessary. Um, I I was speaking to one of your biggest fans who happens to be my boss's wife, uh, uh, Susan Strong, and she was talking about her experience, her experience at the voting booth, white woman. And she said that there were a bunch of women who are out. I mean, you're seeing you're seeing these groups of people who are just sick and tired of being sick and tired, who are showing up and showing up to the polls. And it's organized. I mean, people are not coming by themselves. The early voting numbers are shattering these old numbers because people are going to get friends. People really want to create change. Now, what we do know, and what you know, Michael, is that for your listeners who may not know this, uh, Democrats vote early, Republicans vote on election day. And so you can't get caught up in all the early voting numbers. You can't cannibalize your electorate. But I just have a feeling, Donald Trump was down 247,000 votes in Florida going into election day, 247,000. And he won by 113,000. And so I don't, we're not counting any chickens, but what we are saying is that the energy, the enthusiasm is there. And so we'll see what happens, but I'll firmly believe, and this is another note you got to watch. You got to watch Florida and Ohio. And the reason being is because Florida and Ohio are the two states that will count all their ballots on election night. And Donald Trump cannot be president of the United States if he loses either one of those. Now, if he happens to win both of those, which Ohio might be the only one he can, but let's say he happens to win both of those, then Donald Trump, if he's up in Michigan or up in Pennsylvania before all the ballots are counted, the danger comes in if he claims victory and says, I've won even before all the ballots are counted. It's called a red mirage, and I pray to God we don't get to that point.
1: Yeah, well, I I predict that he will. I predict that even before the very first state is called, Donald Trump declares victory. No difference than when he declared Mike Pence's victory at the vice presidential debate, right? Against Kamala, um, (laughs) before before it was even over. Now I've been asking <laughs> I've been asking everyone that I speak with about Trump's refusal to guarantee a peaceful transition of power should he lose this election. What are your prognostications for election night in terms of potential chaos from this Trump MAGA army?
0: Ain't nobody worried about them. Listen, Trump's, Trump's MAGA army or whatever they call, they only go to places where they can really fuck with people. Like they not, they not, they not in Detroit. You know, they they're not in Philadelphia. They're not going to Atlanta. They're not coming to Charlotte. Like that. Like nobody's. Look, this this election, and I I haven't been focused, Michael. You have to understand that you guys have taught me a political lesson, you included, that you have to run through the tape in every election. Twenty sixteen has traumatized me, and so I'm not even worried about getting him to leave office until. We actually win the race, get everybody to the polls and win the race. And then I guarantee you on January 20th, I believe that's when inauguration is Secret Service is going to be there at noon to escort him to wherever he wants to go. Bedminster back to back to Park Avenue or wherever he lives. I'm not worried about him leaving office and I'm not worried about the people who will be in the streets harassing people and bullying people that they can only bully. I, I think that, you know, these poll watchers, they're not going, like, ain't nobody going to stand in the way of my mama showing up to vote. No matter how big you look or how scary or what, what color MAGA hat you got on, people are going to show up and vote and they will not be intimidated by anybody in these elections. Trust me on that, Mike.
1: Well, I hope you're right, because we recently had James Carville on the show, and he believes that all of this is an attempt by Trump to leverage some kind of a pardon. And Carville says that Trump knows that he's losing and he's likely going to prison. And his only saving grace is the leverage he has with these militia groups. You agree with that statement?
0: I do to a certain extent, but I think that, you know, I was in, this is funny. um, You may remember this, but I was in the studio when uh, it was before the Mississippi primary. And, um... I was about to go on State of the Union with Jake Tapper, and he was interviewing Trump. And he asked Trump about David Duke. And it was the Sunday before the Tuesday of the Mississippi primary. And he was like, David Duke, you know what he says. I don't know him. <laughs> like, who? But, who? He's like, who? Who's, who's endorsing who's, me?
1: D- David, David who? What are you talking about?
0: Yeah, exactly. So it was it was weird to watch him play footsie with white supremacists. And and I was just like, you know, he's trafficking in the currency of of racism. And I don't know if he has. I don't think he's like smart enough to to even know what the Boogaloo boys stand for. Or I think he probably thinks that the Proud Boys are like gay dudes in New York. Like, I don't think that he truly understands as long as they with him. Right. As long as they with him, that's all he that's all he wants. I mean, as long as they're feeding him, as long as they, they are, are having their allegiance with him. And so I, I, find, I figure when this is all over, when they lose, when he loses, he's going to dump them like he dumps everybody else. And we'll, we'll see. I mean, he's their leader, but they, he don't want to lead anybody who, when, after he loses his race, he's going to dump everybody and move on with his life.
1: Well, let's, let's hope so, because I, I don't really see it exactly the same way. How do you, how do you see it? Well, I think he's going to attempt to hold on to power. And I said that over 19 months ago when I testified before the House Oversight Committee, and I talk about this all the time. I do not. And I was the first to say, and now they're using my words. I do not believe that there will be a peaceful transition of power under Trump. I believe that he's using the second most disgraceful individual in U.S. politics, Attorney General Bill Barr. And he's loading up the Supreme Court, and he's going to challenge he's going to he's going to declare victory and anything that says that Donald Trump is not the president for at least another 4 years and hear my words at least another 4 years is making a terrible mistake that's going to be resolved by the Supreme Court and it's going to be challenged by the attorney general and by anybody else that's willing to jump onto Trump's you know to Trump's side and it looks to me as if though Bill Barr has traded his soul for a guy who's pretending to be the devil.
0: Let me just say you, Bill Barr is by far the most dangerous person in American politics. There's nobody who wields more.
1: You don't have to tell me. He sent <laughs> me back to prison.
0: Right? <laughs> that is true. He did send you back to prison uh, for having dinner, right? Didn't you just have dinner and he sent you back to prison? It, okay,
1: so it had nothing to do with dinner. It had to do with, I was permitted to go for dinner.
0: Well, thank you for ch- thank you for sharing this story. I was going to ask you when you were on my podcast, but I'm glad you tell me what happened at dinner because I saw you in the New York Post eating a big steak, and then you go back to prison.
1: I was on a furlough, and the whole purpose of furlough is to be able to reintegrate the inmate with family and friends. Now we were safe distanced and so on. The only reason that we didn't have masks on because we were eating. It had nothing to do with that dinner. The New York Post, which, of course, is Rupert Murdoch, who now seems to be abandoned. Rupert Murdoch is another dangerous human being with the New York Post, which has become Trump's National Enquirer. That's all that they are. Anytime that they can say something negative about me or anybody that is not supporting Trump, they're more than happy to do. But it had nothing to do with being out for dinner. I was permitted under furlough. I was awaiting a home confinement date. All of a sudden, I receive... A phone call from a guy named um, Adam Pakula from the Department of Corrections telling me not to go to the RRM, the Residential Reentry Management Program um, uh, location in the Bronx, but to go to 500 Pearl. And I got a little bit concerned and I was curious. So I called a buddy of mine who happens to be a lawyer, Jeffrey Levine. And I said, hey, Jeff, this doesn't seem right. He goes, it doesn't. You mind if I come with you? I said, well, that's why I was calling. I would like for you, you know, just to be there, to be a witness. They hand me a two-page document. Adam Pakula and his boss, I forget her name. And the first line is that you cannot publish a book, you can't speak, you can't go on media, you can't talk to the press. Not only can I not do this, but neither can my family or my friends. Well, the first thing we said is, this sounds a little bit unconstitutional. I mean, it's so (laughs) overbroad. Is there a way that we can possibly tamp down the language? Because as you're probably aware, my book is already with the publisher, and it's being set for print. Oh, sure, Mr. Cohen, do me a favor. Why don't you and your lawyer wait outside for us? Uh, we're going to run it up the ladder, and we're going to see what we can do about it. Okay? The two of us sit. We go to the lobby area. We're watching television. An hour and twenty minutes goes by. We're sitting. We're waiting. Finally, three gentlemen stand behind me. The U.S. Marshals, Mr. Cohen, stand up and face the wall. I said, "For what?" They said. You're being remanded back to prison. I said, for what? For failing to sign the document. Your refusal is a violation of your home confinement. I said, but I haven't been given the home confinement yet. That's why I'm here. And it was terrible. I had my son waiting outside with the car, you know, to bring me back where they were going to put the, uh, the ankle monitor on. It was what they did was a violation of my first amendment rights. And that was acknowledged. How long did you go back? I went back for 16 days in solitary confinement and thank God for my lawyer, Donya Perry, and for the brilliance of judge Hellerstein who called out bill Barr and Michael Carvajal, the head of the BOP and Adam Pakula and the rest of these animals. He called them out and he said, this was retaliatory and now making me the first political prisoner in the United States being held for not agreeing to waive my First Amendment constitutional rights. It's this Bill Barr is a disgrace, not just to the practice of law, but to all of humanity.
0: Well, Bill Barr is going to be dangerous in this election cycle to bring it back home. And I just think to, 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 I hear you and I don't disagree with you, but I will tell you that if the polls are right as they weren't, I know people have a problem with polls, but polls were actually right in 2016. They were actually right in 2016. The fact is, uh, the polls had Hillary Clinton winning by three points. She won by three points. But uh, if the polls are right and, and Joe Biden has a 10 or 11 or 12 point victory, this will not be close enough that Donald Trump can do those things. But if they're wrong and it, or it gets closer, then everything you said can and probably will happen.
1: Well, you touched on that early voting is showing record turnouts, which, as you accurately stated, usually favors Democratic candidates. And the press loves to show the long lines to emphasize that turnout. But how much of this, especially in places like Georgia, is a result of voter suppression and the shuttering of polling spots, forcing voters to wait in these ridiculous 11-hour long lines?
0: All of it. I mean, we we outlined you outlined uh, Rudy Giuliani and what we both outlined Rudy Giuliani and Bill Barr uh, as people who were dangerous to democracy. Um, I'll go one step further. The the what Scott Walker has done, what uh, Brian Kemp has done, Um, race. And this is a quote I'm taking from an article. Race is one of the strongest predictors of how long a person waits in line to vote. Residents of entirely black neighborhoods waited 29% longer to vote and were 74% more likely to spend more than 30 minutes voting. Similarly, non-white voters are seven times more likely than white voters to wait in line for more than an hour to vote. It's all voter suppression. How about this? In the Stacey Abrams, Brian Kemp race, when Kemp maintained the authority to run his own race because he was secretary of state, voters in uh, DeKalb County near Atlanta, Georgia showed up to polling places, one was in a mall, and they didn't have uh, electric, uh, the, the strips, the outlet strips, electricity strips, to plug in the actual uh, voting booths. Like they didn't even supply them with electricity and electric strips to plug in the voting booths. And so, yeah, you had lines, uh, Jonte Austin, who's a, a worldwide producer in Atlanta, he just waited in line 11 hours to vote, 11 hours. And so just by virtue of that, it's going to depress the turnout. It's voter suppression. People like to look at it and say it's inspiring. It ain't. It's not inspiring. It should not take you this long to vote in this country. But that's a deterrent. And that's one way that, you know, some Republicans, particularly in the South, and Scott Walker perfected it through voter purges and long lines keep people from voting.
1: Yeah. Well, if you take a look, you see that the Trump campaign and those trying to refute His dire poll numbers continue to point out, as you stated before, how in 2016 that the polls were saying the same thing that they're saying today and that Trump still won. What do you think of the key differences this time around? Besides for, of course, the giant elephant in the room, meaning COVID-19.
0: So COVID-19 is the biggest difference, but you also have some smaller differences. Uh, just the, the, you know, you start with the fundamentals of unpopularity. You know, they, they tried to make Joe Biden an unpopular figure. They couldn't, they couldn't drag him down. You had Jill Stein. Jill Stein didn't uh, lose the election for uh, Hillary Clinton, but she didn't help either. You don't have that Jill Stein uh, kind of uh, uh, third, third party uh, voter there. Um, Comey. Comey, 11 days before the election was, it still, it still gives me ulcers to think about it. I mean, 11 days before the election, you know, you announce, you make this announcement that you're reopening an investigation into nothing. Um, And so uh, those, those don't exist. Those fundamentals that we had in 2016 do not exist anymore. So without the third party, um, without, uh, without Comey, And with the utter failure of coronavirus there's a new the CDC just issued a report Michael which is kind of which is devastating to to many of us which shows the the heightened importance the overwhelming majority of kids under the age of 21 who have died from COVID-19 have been black or brown um you're you're talking about 75 80 percent of those who have died from COVID-19 have been black and Hispanic kids and so it really hits home, and that's why people are turning out in numbers that have been unseen, and so we just have to keep that going through november third
1: well let's really hope that they actually come out and vote you know unfortunately Correct. uh during the Hillary clinton uh election, there was a lot of african american black brown um apathy in terms of getting out to vote, maybe because All the polls had said that she was going to win by such a landslide and nobody believed it. I don't know, but I do truly hope that all of the programs that are pushing the black and brown communities and the Hispanic communities to come out and to make sure that they vote. And the fact that they wait on these elect, look, maybe I'm spoiled and or maybe I was spoiled prior to this ass kicking that I took. But I think I would be I, I have to be honest I'm not so sure I would wait 11 hours to cast a vote. I would probably do it by ballot, by mail-in ballot. And here's the big problem with the whole mail-in ballot. There's twofold. The first is, Trump has said on several occasions prior to the election cycle, this is when he was just a candidate, he really admired Putin, especially when Putin had won the presidency again. I think he had 92% approval. And there was a comment that was brought to Trump, which was, it doesn't matter who you vote for. All that matters is who's counting the vote. Yeah. Right? And he was very intrigued by that whole statement. And then you go and you take a look at Reality Winner and what's happened to her in terms of being the whistleblower for apparent Russian intention of hacking into our voting system into the into the um, electronic voting booth system in order to, I guess, effectuate the statement that I had just previously made. And yet she too sits in prison <laughs> by, our, by our Department of Injustice. <laughs> I like that name. Well, that'll be my next book, The Department of Injustice.
0: This is a real problem. I wanna, you know, the, the Cohen Diaries probably needs to be your next book. That's what i, I The Cohen Diaries. I like the way that sounds. Uh, So to your point earlier, 4.4 million people who voted for Barack Obama in 2012 did not show up and vote in 2016, 4.4 million. Of those 4.4 million, over one-third were Black, not Black and brown, not not Hispanic, just Black. So one-third of 4.4 million is a lot. I I don't do math that well. So I'm going to say it's about 1.5, 1.6, something like that, right? 1.6 1.6 million black folks stayed at home and and, and y'all won by 100,000 votes. I mean, so you're right. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. And I don't anticipate that being the case this go They're, You know, they, they're saying it, it was 65 million to 62 million in the last race. What's that? 127 million. They say they're expecting between 150 to 160 million people to vote in this election. That's crazy. Well, good.
1: And that's why, again, I put my bet down with that with a guesser because I want to win the fifteen grand for the ACLU, <laughs> right? And I want to show that that winning
0: ticket up there. Like I'm a retweet it. I'm a retweet it and retweet it. Full of pride. Full of pride.
1: Like when I won American Pharaoh on the uh, in the horse race. <laughs> but, so so the other day, Kamala Harris gave Judge Amy Coney Barrett a what I would consider to be a fairly gentle cross examination especially in light of the epic torturing that she gave Kavanaugh during his confirmation. Do you think that the Democrats were worried about doing anything to energize the right in making Judge Barrett look like a martyr at the hands of Kamala? Or do you think that they're just trying to avoid giving Trump an opening for racist stereotypes around ideas of Harris as the angry black woman, something that they've tried repeatedly to land throughout this election?
0: That's a really, really good question, uh, Michael. That's a brilliant question, actually. And I think that Kamala is treading waters that haven't been tread before. Uh, You know, we haven't seen a Black woman on this playing field, on this level before, and the media is having trouble. Uh, The Pence-Trump campaign is having trouble dealing with her. I think what you saw in the ACB hearing was her play the role of team player. You know, she honed in on things like healthcare and global warming. She wasn't uh, nearly uh, playing the prosecutorial role that you played with uh, Jeff Sessions or uh, Kavanaugh, et cetera, et cetera. But Democrats realize this about the, the overwhelming majority of Americans believe that this hearing, this seat is illegitimate uh, because of the when it's happening and them rushing. It's amazing how the United States Congress can rush through this uh, can rush through this Senate confirmation, but can't give Americans COVID relief when they need it, right? I mean, the priorities are just crazy. So that, that's first. But Democrats also see, as my dad says sometimes, that the light at the end of the tunnel, sometimes that's not light, that's a train coming. And that train is ACB. I mean, she's going to be on the court. There's nothing we can do to stop that. There's literally nothing you can do. And so you just have to make your points understand that there, there are larger things there. And those larger things mean that we have to point out to the American public that the court is on the ballot. And we know that gets Republicans riled up. But finally, Democrats are starting to pay attention to it. too.
1: And I think that Americans are going to also, after the election and the win of the Biden-Harris ticket, people are going to really get to learn a lot more about Kamala Harris as a, as a person, as a human being. I think she gets a tremendously bad rap. Uh, I met her when I was testifying before the Senate select committee on intelligence. And I have to be honest, she came over to me and it was on more than one occasion. And I found her to be incredibly kind and compassionate. And she didn't need to at that time either. Um, And I think that America will ultimately find out that that's who she is as a, as an individual. Um,
0: I I will tell, I will tell her you said that. So thank you for that.
1: Yeah, she really was. And um, I would like to thank her one day myself, but, that brings me to a tweet that you had written um uh, i think it was october 8th about kamala um and her debate performance you wrote i've tried to debate with black women throughout my <laughs> lifetime and i haven't won one yet <laughs> pence is about to learn tell me about this
0: yeah I, they uh, I, i'm still defeated as they say not undefeated but still defeated my wife wins every argument my mama wins every argument And my 22-month-old daughter uh now sadie wins every argument so you know it's just uh you know uh, black women are, are so strong and and you saw her nimbleness and how quick she was and how she did it with such style and grace and so you know we'll we will i think that it's refreshing to be able to make history and it's kind of wild that uh donald trump is i mean not donald trump joe biden has become this transcendent he's the first Uh, He was the vice president to the first black president, and now he's ushering ushering in the first black uh, female uh, vice president, and he will have a black Supreme Court justice. Um, So it's weird that of politics, is funny that of all people, Joe Biden is that transcendent figure.
1: Well, I learned early, early on, I had a friend named Will and I was over at his house having dinner and I got into a debate with his mom. And um, she hit me inside the head with a rolling pin and I knew never to debate with a black woman <laughs> ever again.
0: My mama would use a shoe uh, and and or uh, she would make me go out and, and uh, she made me go out and and, and pick my own switch. <laughs> uh, and, you yeah. know, when you were picking a switch, man, you, you tried to pick the thick ones and she would beat you with that one and then go get a thin one. So, yeah, don't you learned your lesson the hard way.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was very hard. I still have a knot the side of my head. Um, but. Despite what's at stake for the Supreme Court, it seems to me that the Democrats see the confirmation as largely inevitable. And yep. the strategy being, let's lose the battle here to win the bigger war.
0: Exactly. I mean, you, that's that you hit the nail on the head. And I think what you try to do is go in and show how uh, kind of out of her depth ACB is and show that this is a justice. This shouldn't be here. This is a process that's illegitimate. But you still understand that you really can't stop her. You just can't stop her.
1: And what do you think should be done when the Democrats take the Senate as well, and Biden becomes president? What if anything you know can be can be done?
0: Well, first thing I mean, I mean in regards to the courts, is that what you're asking, or just yes. in general? Oh, in regards to the courts, we need to add. We haven't added federal judges in this country since uh, Jimmy Carter. I think we need to add seventy to a hundred new federal judges. I'm in favor of adding um, three new. Uh, Membership of the Supreme Court, that won't happen, though, under Joe Biden. Joe Biden is not going, not going to do that. I think that Justice Breyer should resign so that um, uh, we, we, we can appoint a new ju- justice in his position, but we definitely need to expand the federal judiciary.
1: And what do you think about maybe term limits? For both Supreme Court judges as well as federal court judges,
0: I can't say that because I practice in front of them, so I can't say uh, that at all. Because I, I... <laughs> well,
1: I'll say it. Then I'll say it for both of us. I truly believe that. No one should have a job for life unless you're That's a true. dictator. That's my opinion, and I believe the same thing for federal court judges. I think it becomes too easy, like what happened with me, uh, with, with my federal court judge, where there's no consequence. They have judicial immunity, and no matter what they do, it, the easier that somebody makes the case for them, and this is where the entire entire um, justice Department needs an overhaul, and prison reform needs a complete overhaul. And just the the extent of incarceration in this country, which is staggering, they, it's, not, it's not about justice anymore. Now it's a
0: business. It's a business. And it's not just on the federal level. It's on the state level as well.
1: It all needs to be changed. To be honest with you, though, Bakari, I'm still more fascinated in the weird, the handmade tales cult that Judge Barrett was part of in Indiana. Have you heard anything about this at all?
0: I haven't. I haven't studied Justice Barrett that much. Well, future Justice Barrett, because I've been, uh, you know, I know that the seat that she's in was supposed to be a seat appointed by Barack Obama that didn't get that opportunity. Um, I've been out here focused on trying to get people to the polls. I mean, I I know that she's going to be a justice, unfortunately, um, and we're going to have to do what's necessary to reform the court. That's all I know.
1: Yeah, and I think it's actually, if, if you think about it, why did the evangelicals, as an example, why were they backing Donald Trump?
0: I don't know the answer to that. I tell people that. I'm going to give you the answer. Yeah, I want to hear that. All
1: right. Because I am the one who brought the evangelicals to Trump through my close relationship that exists even today with the Falwells and, <laughs> and other members of the evangelical community. You know, um, they wanted to stack the court. They truly are against Roe v. Wade. And Donald Trump has actually done that. He doesn't know one judge from the next. He doesn't give a shit enough to do any research on his own. He doesn't even have enough. He doesn't even, he doesn't even desire for somebody to come and to, and to speak to him about each individual and give him the cliff notes version. He's the laziest human being. If his gut automatically tells him, boom, that's it. That person is on the list. Then he got the list from the heritage foundation and, others and all he's doing is checking off on the list. Well, who gave him? Who gave him that information? Well, the ones who gave it to him is really the evangelical community and he has stacked the courts both federally and he's going to do it now with the Supreme Court. They no longer need him. And what yeah. they what they what they're saying behind closed doors about him is the same thing that he's saying behind closed doors about them. They know that he's a sexist, a misogynist, that he's never read the fucking Bible in his entire life, <laughs> right? That him standing in front of a church, you know, unless that there's like a hot dog stand there, he's never been in front of a church before either. And the whole thing is just an absolute setup and they don't need him anymore either, right? They, they've already gotten as many judges as they could have ever expected, plus yep. more, Yep. And so I truly believe that many of them. It's one of the biggest cons we've ever seen. Well, yeah. And many of them are going to turn around and they're going to forsake him this time because they've seen the emperor without his clothes. Um, you know, Bakari, I just want to thank you for and you know, spending humor the, that the I, time with
0: something. Our friendship is something that I cherish and I, yeah. I want to see you. Soon. I really do. You know, and people don't realize that we
1: had met so many times before, you know, in the green room, while, even yeah. while we were on opposite sides of the field and i was part of that sycophantic trump cult all right there was always nothing but a lot of love and respect for you and you know your 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 answers were always predicated on fact the only difference is that you just didn't see along with so many of our fellow democrats the silent majority that trump was no and had you seen that, I think that Hillary Clinton would have been a much more active um, yeah. candidate, and I think she probably would have pulled it off had she shown herself to be um, more relatable to, yeah, got to people. Yeah. Well, well, I, I look run, forward brother. to seeing I you soon. I love you, man. Thank you, man. We'll all see right, each other soon. My best to your family. I, I, I look for forward sure. to it the same. All Thank right, you so right, much. Bye. Be well. And now, for today's Mayor culpa. I can't help but think back to the fateful day in 2012 when I strode into the boss's office, armed with a stack of polls declaring that I would make Donald Trump president of the United States. It's the kind of ridiculous statement that you only make in the presence of a man like Trump. Spend enough time with him, and the forces of reality seem to bend to his will. That it actually happened, though, is something else entirely an accident of history where the forces of evil united to deliver the Brioni-clad monster who, despite his well-born status, had a gift for channeling populist rage and sentiment. Now, eight years later, after unimaginable pain and suffering, needless death and anguish, the time has come to slay the monster that is Donald Trump. It's something that needs to happen, not just for the sake of the country and humanity as a whole, but for my own peace of mind. My amends for the wrong I committed at this man's behest will seem empty and hollow if he is given four more years to wreak more havoc on this country. But that is on me. I need to find some peace within myself. The question I have for those of you still within the Trump cult is to ask yourselves what you think you still have to gain by standing beside this man. It has been pointed out countless times by critics that I did not change to see the light until I went to prison. The spell of Donald Trump was so strong that like a lemming, I ran my own life and career off a steep cliff, thinking that this man, to whom I pledged my life, would reciprocate with a helping hand. Only when I was thrown to the wolves, abandoned, disgraced, and discarded, did I finally understand the true depths of this con. Don't let this happen to you. Get out now. Leave this man to face the reckoning of history. If you're guilty, face your consequences and get right with your maker. But don't go down with this man, he won't save you. And the only way to save yourself is to break free of Donald Trump and tell the world what you know. Starting tomorrow, this show will pivot from the president's past sins to his present predicament. Our aim will be nothing less than the imprisonment of Donald J. Trump. I will continue to speak to you honestly about what's really going on behind the orange mask and help you make sense of the coming aftermath. In addition, The show will continue to be a place of refuge and safe harbor for those of you looking to escape the Trump cult. Text me day or night at 646-374-3506. There is much work yet to be done, and I will be right there with you every step of the way. And thanks for listening. Maya Culper is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up in association with Midas Touch, and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick and executive producer Jared Gustad, And it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please register to vote. I'll do my part on this podcast. But to truly make a difference, you must vote this man out of office. So if you're not registered, go do it now and come out and make sure that you vote on November 3rd.